Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning we have with us Michael Rechtenwald. Did I say your name right? Yes, Rechtenwald. Okay. Uh, joining us from Texas, we have Curtis, and I'm in the frozen state of California. I had to put, I have shorts on, but I had to put some long sleeve, a, pan, a, a long sleeve shirt on today because it's so freezing. And uh, Michael, where are you? Where are you? Uh, fr- where are you at? Where are you joining? I'm in us Pittsburgh at? right now. Okay, so it's probably pretty warm there. It's probably what 80. <laughs> no, no, 85. not quite. It's 50, probably 50 or at the highest right now. Well, that's not bad. Well, yeah. we had uh, this. We we get in Primus Hillsdale's free monthly uh, newsletter. I think it has like six million people on the mailing list. And the last in Primus was was this thing called the Great Reset. And we have the guy on. We have him on, and. His background is there for you. Um, PhD, literary cultural studies from Carnegie Mellon. He's uh, taught at New York University. Where's that at? NYU. Is that? <laughs> in, it's in New York. Okay. Of course, would, yeah. That would make sense. Okay. Um, Duke University. I've heard of that one. Uh, North Carolina Central, Carnegie Mellon, Case Western. He. Um, has a lot of teaching experience. You taught at NYU for over a decade, right? 11 years. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. What was it like teaching at NYU? Uh, the teaching wasn't bad at all. I enjoyed the teaching. Students are uh, pretty good. I mean, they're not, they weren't like Duke students. Okay. Uh, they weren't as, uh, academically scholarly type students they were more cosmopolitan mm. creme creme de la creme rich <laughs> kids from all over the world not, not entitled at all not at all <laughs> and uh they were you know but they were still good students i had no problem with the students at all you know it was the administration that i ran into problems with yes some other yeah. faculty the, the administration is woke there, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's quite interesting. Does that, did you feel pressure to inflate grades there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Entirely, just, yeah. It's, uh, what, form, what, what form does that pressure take on you for a faculty? Well, what it is is, uh, you know, I was on a, I was a full professor when I left. But cool. Uh, nevertheless, I was on a contract basis. They had a weird, mm-hmm. a weird, um, so no weird, what's that? No tenure, but full-time. Yeah. Full-time, full professor. They had rank, but no tenure. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, the pressure comes in the form of evaluations, student evaluations. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's right. So is it like, do you feel like it's a popularity contest and it's a race to the bottom or what is it? Not exactly a race to the bottom. You have to be able to, uh, if you're a good teacher and you, I know I was very, very much, very rigorous with my, uh, what I made the students do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was, uh, awesome. I, I joined them to, to engage in rigorous discourse and uh, mm-hmm. writing 
And um, so I, I made the classes very difficult in terms of the content, but then I graded softly. Yes. Okay. What kind of courses did you teach there? I taught, uh, well, my background is, it says literary and cultural studies, but actually I did my dissertation in the history of science, mm. British mm. science, 19th century British science and culture. So I taught some courses in literature and science, uh, you know, connections between literature and science in the 19th century. I taught some history of science, um, taught a course on, uh, on secularism. Uh, I taught academic uh, writing as well. What was your teaching load? A three, 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 three. Okay. And did you write in the summer or did you teach in the summer? No, I didn't teach. I wrote. Yeah. Okay. Well, you have lots of books that it seems like you have at least three books out there. I saw the Google. I have 11, 11. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. I was, uh, you have this great title, the Google archipelago. Anybody that knows uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn would know that uh, as a play off of the Gulag archipelago, which is uh is an account of Soviet atrocity, Marxist atrocity. Right. And you've, uh, you've appropriated that for the, what's happening with our woke big tech. And right. I thought that was very interesting. What's the thesis of that book and how did you come uh, up with that? The thesis is that uh, global, uh, that uh, big tech or what I call big digital actually. Okay is the leading edge of a new corporate socialist order. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that they are the communications and ideological apparatus of that order. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they're the enforcers of the ideology and uh, they are the leading edge in establishing this kind of woke, uh, woke monopolies, really woke monopolies and yep. who do you who, who in your in your estimation who's driving it is it is it being driven politically is it being driven globally um is it being driven by the by big digital itself it's big it's called uh, it's political capitalism okay um it's a way of politicizing the market uh in an effort to uh create cartel cartelization and uh, to uh, eliminate competitors. Uh, and uh, it's being driven, I would say, well, it's a very strange amalgam of, of forces. Uh, mm -hmm. You have um, big tech itself, which is, I think, the leftist and authoritarian and character. Uh, and then it, it's being fueled, of course, by the, the left on the ground. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I would say that uh, the interest there uh, in the politics is to create a particular political capitalism. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like as I try to explore, I, I, I read your your excerpts from your Google Archipelago. I'm a big fan of 
the you know Solzhenitsyn, and and I've often thought you know it, it, we need something like the University Archipelago <laughs> written. <laughs> yeah, because you know these accounts of how how it the social pressure, I guess, but it seems like there's so many things that come together. Um, And we're always trying to, you know, in the simplest, come up with the simplest explanation, but it seems that there's something much bigger than any one government, any one state. There's something huge going on. Mm -hmm. Um, The world economic forum is this ubiquitous type of organization. People don't know a lot about, Right. Um, I think the UN plays into it, but yeah. How did like, how does, how do you sort out the complication and come up with a simple explanation? Well, I tried to do it by virtue of seeing what the function of all this was. For example, what is the function of wokeness rather than just analyzing um, wokeness and which others are doing like James Lindsay and others. I tried to determine just how it works and what to what end it operate. Hmm. And uh, I did a lot of historical reading and basically in, uh, in, in other political capital capitalist adventures, starting in the um, uh, late 19th century, uh, actually, you know, even a little bit earlier than that, uh, with uh, different players like like Bellamy and Gillette and -hmm. others who have attempted to establish this kind of corporate socialism where you have a kind of corporate oligarchy on top and a kind of equality on the bottom. Uh, Of course, this is equality in a static sense and uh, a kind of... uh, what I call, you know, actually existing socialism, right? Mm. After the dissidents, as, as the way they na- called uh, the Soviet Union, it was actually existing socialism oh, on the ground. Um, so you, you, you can see now whether whether these elitists actually propagated woke ideology or what. or what. They certainly at least have appropriated it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and used it to their ends. I'm not sure if I can say that they propagated it from the start, uh, but it is it is being propagated from academia. So, you know, what is what is the intellectual class? As Murray Rothbard put it, they effectively are the ideological agents of the state, and so what they do is they propagate the narratives, the ideology that the state once issued. And um, let's back, let's back up a little bit. Let's, yeah. let's talk about your great reset piece, what the thesis of it is. Mm-hmm. And I know, yeah. So I'll let you take the lead on that. We'll ask clarifying questions. Of course, you want to get the Hillsdale piece. It's available online. You can sign up for it. It comes in a physical form. Uh, the Golden Gate Bridge is blocking your Hillsdale piece. I, can, I sense a conspiracy there, <laughs> uh, obviously. It's well, your backdrop, anyway. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But um, so uh, it appeared in the December 2021 Imprimus. This is a publication of Hillsdale College. You can get it for free. It comes in your mailbox. 
6.2 million readers monthly. This is uh, volume 50, number 12. It's available online as well. What, what inspired that piece and what's it about? Well, you know, everybody's been bandying this idea around and I wanted to try to explain uh, just what it is to dispel the idea that, that it's a conspiracy theory. Uh, after all, that phrase is used to indict anything that might explain uh, <laughs> yeah. the narrative from a different standpoint mm -hmm. uh, that may give a different explanation for what's going on. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Uh, first, talk about that question, whether it's a conspiracy theory only. And then delve into the actual agents involved and what they're saying and what they're trying to do and what they are accomplishing, which is a tremendous amount. Uh, what they are trying to do is institute, first of all, stakeholder capitalism, as it's called. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is Klaus Schwab's baby. As far as I can tell, I've tried to trace it anywhere else and I can't find any other origin. And I believe he first introduced the idea in his 1971 book, uh, um, management and it's uh, mechanical engineering or something like that. It's a weird title. doesn't seem to say much about all this, but it does. He introduces the stakeholder model in that book mm -hmm. and with the founding of the European management forum in, um, 71 at the same time as he published that book, he started <coughs> bandying this idea about stakeholder capitalism around. And the stakeholder capitalism is capitalism where the corporation or the business is not producing for profit particularly, but to satisfy value, quote unquote, for all of its stakeholders, which include workers, customers, right. uh, the community, society at large, and, and, the, and the environment, the planet. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what, the, what it comes down to is the stakeholder is a, um, what this model means is that all these businesses are supposed to reorient their companies in terms of this stakeholder model and put profit as a, as a more or less, uh, not necessarily a subsidiary value, but a, a corresponding one, but not the primary object. Of course, it, this... Mm -hmm. This, of course, contravenes Milton Friedman's essay, you know, the, um, right. the purpose of a corporation or of a, of a business is to make profit. Well, well yeah, that, it just substitutes shareholder for stakeholder. And you define stakeholder as anybody who could conceivably be affected by the decision that you made in the boardroom. Exactly. Anybody. So <laughs> right. if you're a global corporation, that's anybody in the whole world. I taught, I taught in business departments for over, about a decade, business ethics and public policy. It's in all the business ethics books. So yeah, that's very well. Yeah. We, I, I put it under the scrutiny in my classes, but I don't know what other professors were doing. Um, I've gotten some people that, uh, another business ethics professor sent me an essay where he scrutinizes it pretty much. And the point is, the point is that, it turns out to be a total, you know, a complete central planning mm. uh, yeah. uh, paradigm where you have, you know, they're dictating to corporations what they're supposed to do, what, right. how are they supposed to produce, what 
what materials they will use, uh, what their carbon footprint is, what's the constitution of their, uh, of their board uh, in terms of identity, uh, what's the constitution of their, uh, yeah. of their management, all that. Right. They just want to control every aspect. So this is a big central planning, dictatorial, totalitarian, because they want to control everything. Mm-hmm. Now, when you say they, um, well, so the, let's I'm just, saying but, that the, here's what yeah. happened. The okay. World Economic Forum, in conjunction with the UN, has propagated these ideas, and they have been up take, uh, taken up by over a thousand corporations now, and and 4,700 banks and asset managers. Um, so asset management firms, you know, like BlackRock Inc. and uh, Vanguard yeah. and uh, UBS, U, 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 uh, UBS and State Street and all that. So this is being forced yeah. on on the pub uh, on the public, but also on the corporate world. And mm-hmm. it really is. Uh, do you mind if I ask a clarifying question there? I, not at all. Let me let me let me do a little friendly pushback on that. Just a little bit. See what you how you respond. Um, as someone that was in the trenches in LA in the Cal state system at Pepperdine and Malibu teaching business ethics and public policy, I know what it's like to be a professor in that situation teaching. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I had quite a bit of academic freedom. I'll, I'll admit, even though at least at Cal state, my bosses were all totally Democrat people. Um, I don't know how far down the Marxist trail they were, but they were definitely on leaning on that side. And I, and I, um, I interpreted the stakeholder stuff to be, um, and it, a lot of people think business ethics is a contradiction in terms. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. it's attempt to, to square the circle, uh, because you feel bad or I don't know. Uh, and so, uh, people come up with stakeholder. But, but so that's like a, I would say maybe a bottom up explanation, like uh, maybe uh, a lot of people just feel like business ethics is a, um, is a contradiction in terms and they're just trying to feel better about the, what they do for a living capitalism. Uh, that, that could, that, that, could explain it. Okay. that would explain it if it weren't for the fact that this is having real implications. And not only that, it isn't okay. Everybody knows that for a corporation to succeed, they have to have a good relationship with their customers. They have to have a good relationship with their workers or they'll lose them to other competitors. They have to have some sort of stewardship of their community in the sense that they might, you know, throw, uh, it may, you know, and, you know, donate to certain causes and right. uh, Right. Show up to show their caring uh, concern for different issues in the society. This mm-hmm. is all perfectly compatible with, with capitalism as such, without putting any prefix on it. Right. What they're doing here is um, this gets into the level with the ESG, with the environmental, social, and governance index. This is the guiding principle now uh, and the metric for judging these corporations along these lines. And this gets into vast interventions in the companies and how they operate. And it's not exactly state, it's statist. 
It is statist intervention, but it's not the state as such. And what they're trying to do is get out ahead of state regulation so that when state regulations come along, they'll already be abiding because the, the, the sense is that the, the regulations are coming. Yeah. Oh, OK. So so it's like a businessman anticipating uh, what's coming and trying to stay ahead of it is, yep. is actually so this overregulated society that we already are in is kind yeah. of unintentionally yeah. driving this behavior well, of business owners. Go back to the business, my business classroom. I, I, I remember every semester I was there every, every day I showed up to work. I was like, thank God these kids have me for a professor because they're so lost. Business majors are so lost and yeah. about half of them get it after they have the class, but um, the other half doesn't seem to be um, salvageable uh, for lack of a better term. Be and, and then I think, well, they're graduating. This is the kind of people we're squirting out, the managers, the entrepreneurs. And on a massive level, they're only getting, um, not my view, but, but uh, whatever crap, they're, they're, they're just overwhelmed with it. And I, I think over time, that is who's running businesses. And yeah, they, you know, I think the universities are driving a lot of it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's a good theory. I mean, uh, I've read some theories that, you know, look, the business, you know, business is not that far from the sociology department and, you yes. know, the professors in business are fraternizing with them and they're fraternizing with the humanities scholars who all of whom are left leftists generally. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that, I wouldn't that even itself call it. needs to be explained. What is what in the world? Why? How? What's your explanation for why the universities are so monolithically to the left? Um, yeah, there's. Well, first of all, the the function of academia is largely as a you know for the leftist for the intellectual class, I should say. Yeah, it's largely to serve as an ideological apparatus to support state interests and state objectives. So mm -hmm. you're going to get a lot of statists in effect in the, in the academic world to begin with. So, and then Marxism is the most statist of all ideology. So you're going to get a range between various types of status. Okay. Um, beginning with, uh, simply like Keynesian types and then going all the way to straight up Marxists. Um, so I think that's uh, why. And then how they did it is by virtue of uh, simply the hiring process. And then of course, all the indoctrination that goes on inside. Uh, hiring has been tilted to the left forever. And uh, yeah. Uh, I saw it operating myself in, uh, in academia. I saw, yeah, starting in graduate school, I saw, I saw graduate students, PhD students thrown out of the departments because they were conservative. Wow. Literally said, you can't work, you know, if you're, in a, if you're in a PhD program, you have to find somebody that'll work with you to do your dissertation. Were you on the left at that time? Oh, yeah, I was a Marxist. 
So you're noticing this as a Marxist. I was noticing this as a Marxist. And did you approve of it? No, I don't approve of that. Okay. In fact, I never indoctrinated in the classroom and I thought it was abominable to do so. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even as a Marxist, I just thought that's a place, if you want to build a party or something like that, you can do that elsewhere. This is not the, this is not the place. So you, you made a distinction between, well, you, you pushed for academic excellence is what I hear you saying. Is that fair to say? Yes, absolutely. And academic excellence would imply that you have to give the students uh, at least a shot at disagreeing with you in the, uh, (laughs) your personal views, I guess. In fact, I would, I wouldn't even tell them what my personal views were. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, the bias and, can come out in different ways, like what you exclude, how much time you spend on. Something. I agree. So what I tried to do is I tried to approach everything from a multi-perspectival uh, right. point of view, various, all the different perspectives on, on the same topic. So if I taught and I did, I taught course, I taught a course where I treated economics, the environment. I had, a, I, had a, I have a textbook called Academic Writing, Real World, Real World Topics, and it has like oh. seven or eight different uh, clusters of topical clusters, and they're all approached from different disciplinary and critical perspectives. So you have uh, on the economy, I had a Keynesian, I had a neoclassical, I had a, a Marxist, I had a, a just, just all the different views, and even in an Austrian uh, economist. So hmm. I would I wouldn't uh, tilt my hand, tip my hand as to which one I agreed with, and I wouldn't spend any more time on one than the other. As a matter of fact, even as a Marxist, I thought that the Marxist that I used, that his essay was the worst and made no sense to explain what we were talking about, which is <laughs> the evolution of economic crises. So. Hmm. So if it's not a if the Great Reset is not a conspiracy theory, I, I, let's let's spend a, a minute on on a, what a conspiracy theory is. Yeah, a conspiracy theory. The word means, well, first of all, it's a theory to explain data phenomena, right? Uh, which we use all the time, and it's perfectly normal to use theories to to understand the world. Um, a conspiracy yeah. involves a postulating hypothesis of two or more people agreeing to carry out a plan right now. So this could be a surprise birthday party. Uh, could be something innocent like that, uh, that was planned by two people or more. Um, and you come home and, uh, what do you know? There's a surprise. <laughs> You're surprised. And there's all these people. Well, you explain those data by, by thinking that People agree to do that. And that, you know, that's, that's fine. Yeah. But another sense of conspiracy is something nefarious and evil. And actually sometimes it's illegal. So for example, there's all sorts of crimes that require the cooperation of two people, like maybe mm. kidnapping or bank robbery or, or terrorism or something. And so if, if um, the, the data of the crime is what you're trying to explain, uh, then you might postulate, these two individuals conspired to commit blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And that's a conspiracy theory. But the way people use the term is very sloppy. The way people oftentimes just use it as if it just means false. 
like a right. false statement. <laughs> oh, that's a right. conspiracy theory. What they mean is it's false. <laughs> it's it's that statement is false. One Instead way to back saying, out of it is is to say, look, this is a conspiracy hypothesis that I'm positing because the yeah. theory is a much stronger word than hypothesis. Mm-hmm. You know, the theory of evolution is well, except generally accepted. I don't accept it as it stands, but it's generally accepted. So, but yeah. the you know, right. So this, and it, one other thing about conspiracy is that it has to be clandestine, that is hidden. Um, and so that's right. why this is not a conspiracy theory, because I'm not talking about something that's I'm, I'm positing as a hidden conspiracy, a hidden collaboration. It is wide open. There's no hide. Gotcha. There's no, nothing being hidden here. Hidden here. It's, so it's more like a lease, like I sign a lease with my landlord that we don't call that a conspiracy. We call that just a contract. A contract, exactly. Because <laughs> it's not Look hidden. at this. Look what they put in here. Oh, <laughs> small every type. month. What do you mean every month? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that, there's a that, pandemic. That's that's very much like it. It's like, have you read the small type? It doesn't mean it's hidden. It's there. Yeah, this is that's what's a good, being that's agreed very, to. That's very, that's great. That's very clarifying. That's great. Yeah, that's helpful. I think a lot of people are going to have some light bulbs go off on that one. You, you know, that, that makes me think about like reading the, the research that you've done with uh, with Schwab in his 71 book and then, and then uh, writing, I forget the other gentleman that he wrote the Great Reset with, but uh, those <laughs> guys. Gentlemen, I love your term, <laughs> gentlemen. Thierry Malloret. Malloret, that's right. Um, these are books that people, these are small fine print that people aren't even paying attention. It's not even on the the fine print. That's right. It's all right there. You just have to read the fine print. Now there is some mm -hmm. reading between the lines that goes on. Okay. Um, Okay. Tell us about that. Not so much with the stakeholder business, which I think is wide open. Yes, it is. Uh, but with the fourth industrial revolution part, Mm. because, um, the World Economic Forum claims and basically postures themselves as effectively trying to direct what they see as inevitable, uh, the technologies that are, that are developing and are already out some, in some cases. And they're trying to, they suggest that they're trying to just make this a transition that works for everyone, that it's equitable, fair, it, that it that it protects individual rights, that it doesn't invade privacy, because we're talking about very invasive technologies, um, you know, for all the way down to from, you know, uh, biometric uh, sensors putting on your brain and in your body to implants in the brain to nanotechnology in the brain, uh, connecting you to the web and uh, and uh, who know, who knows all what else? Yeah. So they they posture like they're just trying to spare society the possible negative consequences of this. But and so I'm not. I put I put that in the uh, essay, but the technologies themselves uh, lend themselves to extreme surveillance and control. Mm-hmm. Uh, situations because um, uh, we're talking about uh, digital I- identification or digital identity, as they call it. It's not really identification, it's identity. 
You'll have a digital identity and everything that you do on digitally will be recorded and correlated with yourself. Um, this concludes every click on the, on the web, all, all the contacts that you have, everything you've read, all this will be part of your digital identity. That's a very concerning prospect yeah. uh, because this lends itself to use of that digital identity to what? To, to bar you from different activities, to keep you from maybe, uh, you know, getting right. a loan or going Con to control a, you. Well, totally and you're, and you're no longer even free to explore ideas. Right. Because, you know, if, if you want to explore Marxism or explore Mises, now you're all of a sudden a Marxist or a Miesian. Like, yeah, one exactly. of the one of the creepiest things about what you just said that the technology piece of the totalitarian thing is that many people probably won't even be conscious, at least initially, that they they aren't free. I mean, yeah. they they until later and then you can't right. do anything about it. And that that creepy feeling of when you want to be free, you want to do something and you're prevented from doing it. And then it like the realization dawns on you that slowly, slowly you've been trapped now and you yes. can't get out of it. Slowly is the right word. It's incremental what's happening. Uh, and it's kind of like the frog in the water in the pot yeah. metaphor. Yeah. It's, well, you're kind of like an Old Testament prophet in a way. You're you're signaling to the masses what they don't want to hear. Yeah. But but it's like this is really what's going to happen or what will happen if you don't change your ways. Yeah. And that's, they that's, look that's at you like you're crazy. Probably. I don't know. How do well, you feel like people look at you? It's happening. Yeah. The only way, the way I get around the idea that I'm crazy <laughs> is by being very scholarly about what I'm doing. Uh, so I try to tie everything down to sources. I try to unpack things and don't just say, you know, boogie bear words like, you know, the elite, you know, and things like that. Right. I tried to show who is who and what is what and what they're saying exactly. Mm -hmm. And what, and then what the implications are of what they're saying now. Uh, that's a low, where a low attention span prevents people from very uh, carefully digesting what you're saying. It's the meme TikTok mentality. Yeah. And I think that's part of the issue, too, is a lower a lowering of the attention span that goes along with great inflation. I mean, one of the things I tried to do was push my students to have a longer attention span. If they do, then they're less like they're more likely to be free in the future, I think. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. I think uh, social media, I, I got to say, has been yeah. very pernicious in this regard, like Twitter yeah. with your X amount of characters. I forget how many it is. It uh, was 140 at first, and I think they doubled it. Yeah, 280, I guess. Okay. Um, yeah, all that. I, I uh, And so I, you know, I'm very dispirited by those media. I use them because, yes. you know, right. they're if you don't have a footprint in that area, you're kind of like not non-existent, but, uh, I've, are you, very, are you on TikTok yet? No, not TikTok, just Twitter and Facebook. Okay. And, uh, I have accounts on, uh, uh what are the other ones? Rumble. Uh, Twitter. What's that? 
Do you are you on YouTube and Rumble? YouTube, not Rumble. Okay. Instagram. Uh, I'm talking about the other social Instagram, media. Instagram. Yeah. No, nah, I have an account. I don't use it. Um, yeah. I'm basically a Twitter and Facebook person, and I have also um, those other ones. Uh, YouTube. No, no, no. The other the Facebook, newer ones like the newer ones. The the Twitter and Facebook uh, oh, analogs. Parlor. Hmm? Parlor. Right. Okay. Can we ask you? Uh, you mentioned your personal a little bit about your personal journey. You said you were a Marxist in your PhD program. How long had you been a Marxist? Did you grow up that way? And then how did you change? What what happened? Oh, that's there? a good question. Uh, I'd say that in the uh, 70s, when I was in my, uh, you know, my late teens and early 20s, uh, I had been an, like an unconscious Marxist, I think. Um, and uh, I remember arguing with my father saying, you know, I think it would be better in the Soviet Union. And he was like, what the? What the hell are you talking about? I mean, and um, I thought for me, it might be better because as an intellectual type, I thought, you know, there, you don't have to compete. You'll just get us, you know, they'll give you a spot and that's it. Interesting. You have uh, a sinecure and that's it. You, you, you do your Yeah. Job. We're an artist, you know, <laughs> so I'm kind of an, I kind of conceived myself as kind of a hybrid artist, intellectual type because I do creative stuff too. Oh, cool. Um, and uh, then what, uh, what kind of creative I, stuff do you do? Yeah. Well, yeah. my last book is a novel, for example. Oh, uh, Thought Criminal. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. I'm going to have to get that one. Yeah. Hold on. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry to get you off. You, you were talking about your childhood. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think there was a lot of cultural conditioning and and ideology being you know basically put out in the culture mm-hmm. that i picked up on um i've written about this a little bit like the, the 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 tv show gilligan's island which is effectively a marxist or a socialist uh mm. utopianism and uh different things like that really were permeating my consciousness but then i went into i never really formalized it I went and uh, finished my undergraduate degree. Uh, uh, by the way, in the process of my undergraduate degree, I studied with Allen Ginsberg, the, the leftist oh, wow. beatnik poet. Yeah. Uh, and where, uh, where was that? Uh, Naropa Institute at Boulder, Colorado, in Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> what year was that? Uh, 81, 80, 81. 81. Wow. Yeah. So you had a class with him? He taught it? I, I not only was a, had a class, I was his apprentice. No way. Yeah. How long did that last? Uh, six months. Okay. That's a long <laughs> enough to get to know him. Yeah, I got to know him. What did you think of him as a person? Uh, do you want to know for real? <laughs> please. <laughs> please. We all, we're, this is a reality show. This is not a, <laughs> no, a real reality, reality show. This is not, we don't want the fake stuff. Yeah, I mean, he was a real, uh, I mean, he was a phony, hmm. uh, is how I would put it mostly. Um, but uh, he was also a very irascible person, very, very short-tempered, very kind of mean. Uh, when you say he was a phony, I mean, that's a, that's, I'm thinking of Holden Caulfield's condemnation of everybody. 
Do you mean it in that sense or do you? Yeah. Like when I went out there, I thought he was going to be like this, you know, uh, you know, I had idealized him as this, you know, real. um, Oh yeah. uh, Genuine. uh, Mm. You know, what, what was he? Genuine leftist, genuine. um, Beatnik. Like a caring guy. Yeah. Yeah, and in some sense, my first, very first impression was the guy's a phony. This whole thing is a charade. But then I got to know him better, and I got to understand more about what he was about. He wasn't really a phony. I mean, he was uh, legitimately doing what he did. I just came to have less respect for it. And now was there, look, was there something specific that you have in mind that that stands out as an anecdote that can help us wrap our minds around that which part the, 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 coming the to, yeah the phony part and the losing respect part well like you know they used to it was naropa institute was a buddhist school so i think it's still there yeah it's now called naropa uh, university uh it was a Buddhist school. And I mean, I remember him, like there were these meditation se- sessions in which he would get in like the center of the room and do his, uh, oming and uh, oming and all that in public, like in a way that was very much about attracting attention. So mm-hmm. it was kind of like, he was a Pharisee, if you want to put it in that terms. Was he so, kind of like, so that's like their version of, uh, like, a television evangelist or something except no no worse you know oh it's worse wow more like a pharisee who prays in public so that they're noted when they pray their prayers are they're 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 getting their value out of not doing the thing itself but the kind of attention it garners from getting attention yeah okay that makes sense that's interesting and you're and these people were all republicans i'm sure right Well, there was probably easy 50 50. I mean, you know, right, no. it's not all leftist. What are you talking oh, yeah, about? That's a conspiracy left. theory. <laughs> oh, so it was all leftists. Wow, that is amazing. So you're saying a phenomenology of this, what you'd have to do it accurately, would say that it's entirely on the left. This whole thing was, yeah. Oh, totally. That's a shocker. Yeah. Well, no, I'm just, I'm just clarifying for there's some people that are really slow to get this and they, when I talk to people, they go, well, I'm sure I'm sure Republicans do that, too. And it's just like, no, no, I'm just yeah. describing yeah. the world. You don't understand. Yeah. I'm at the level of description. That's like saying the Soviet Union was half Republican. You know, right. that's not what's going on here. You're not right. Describing. It was very, very left. And that wasn't even that wasn't even a question. There was no, no question about that. No. Right. But um, then uh, I, I finished my degree and went into advertising for like seven, eight years. Uh, and I was into money, ma- making money. Then I kind of burned out on that career and went into academic, went back to school, got got involved in a master's program at Case Western Reserve. And then it started the indoctrination into particular Marxist and leftist thought. Um, How did that take form? Was that in your coursework? In the coursework, everything was, it was just an onslaught of Marxists or post-Marxists or neo-Marxists or. What year uh, was that? What year uh, was that? Starting in 93. Yeah. Oh. 1993. Yeah. Oh, I mean, so I had no were... intention of going back. That was to... shortly after the fall of uh, the Soviet Union. Isn't that ironic? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is ironic. So. 
you were pot you were in colorado and then you went back to case western is in cleveland okay ohio so yeah. uh, you're popping around the united states yeah and then uh, I, I went back to Pittsburgh for my PhD in uh, literary and cultural studies. And that was an onslaught of feminism. I mean, I had, I had to take courses in Marxisms, feminisms, post-structuralism, you know, all these different schools of leftist uh, political and uh, ideological orientation. It's amazing that you survived. Yeah, <laughs> what, what it is he- amazing. Would it be fair to say that during your graduate, your, your college training all the way through, would it be fair to say that most people hated Republicans? Oh, they hated anybody on the right. Okay. Anybody on the right. Would it be fair to, did you have any Republican professors during that time? That you I know doubt about? it. I, not that I know of now. Okay. And this is probably, this took what, 10 years, your whole graduate? Uh, yeah, well, the PhD uh, took seven itself. So this is a long time you're spending in school. Oh, I spent a long time. I had uh, two years, three years in the master's program because I had to take a, a break in the middle to make money because I had kids at this time. Oh, okay. And, and then seven years in the PhD program, which is not long comparatively. Compared yeah. to my colleagues, they were all taking eight, nine, 10 years. Uh, so yeah, it was a long time. Uh, well, how in, did you, in, yeah. How, oh, sorry. Good. Yeah. In the PhD, but you know, in the masters and PhD, by that point, there's nobody that's so-called Republican or right wing or anything close to it. It's all leftism all the way down. Now, is that just because Republicans exist and they don't want to apply there and it's a free choice on their part or it's that they, they're not welcome and they're they won't welcome. be hired. Okay. They won't be hired. Okay. Um, how did you change? What, what was the starting point of your change? What did that? Uh, It happened when I was um, at NYU. Wow. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. The ironies. They're awesome. (laughs) I'm so glad I've been to New York city and I can actually picture what your, what NYU looks like. I remember going there for the first time and thinking, what in the world, where's the campus? It isn't. It isn't a campus. It's, it's very different than Co- Columbia. I mean, yeah. When you're on Columbia, there it's obviously it's a campus. But then NYU, it's like, wait, hold on a sec. Am I right. lost? They here? just bought a bunch of buildings all over town. That's yeah. basically it. Uh, and put their banner up wherever they had a building. Um, they are the largest real estate holders in the city, by the way. Yeah. Uh, it, it happened when uh, in 2016. First of all, I started to get uh, a lot of problems with colleagues there. Um, I was on a hiring committee and they forced the hire that I thought was, compl- I was the chair of the committee, got thrown off the committee. Uh, it's all written in my book, Beyond Woke, where I talk about all this. Uh, the committee uh, wanted to hire this one person because they were a black female and, they, and I, I, would, I abjured because they couldn't write and we were hiring a writing professor. I mean, they couldn't write a sentence. Uh, oh my gosh. Not, not at all. Like, couldn't write a sentence. I'm serious. Um, wow. And uh, I mean, same as that judge they're putting up right now. What's her name? Jackson. Well, she can't write a sentence at all. Uh, so then, you know, in 16, 
In 2016, I started a Twitter account called the Anti-PCNYU Prof. And uh, I started tweeting about the excesses of uh, wokeness or social justice on campus, uh, particularly like the safe spaces, the uh, trigger warnings, the bias reporting hotline, and uh, the no platforming of speakers. And uh, after the after tweeting for about a month, I got a I got a direct message from a student a newspaper reporter at NYU and asked me for to do an interview with them, and I, I did. I went on the record as myself. That that Twitter account had been anonymous, like so many, but I went on the record, and within two days, I was pushed into a leave of absence uh, and wow. condemned by the diversity, equity, and inclusion group. So, and then an wow. onslaught of media came. I had an onslaught of media attention and then the whole left turned on me with a vehemence. And I noticed the totalitarian character of these people and their ethos. And I decided at one point, I've, I'm done. I've had it with the left entirely, I'm out. And then uh, I began doing research into the history of political leftism and in power and the criminality that it involved. And uh, the deep, deeper I dug, the, the worse it gets, as you know. Uh, Which semester in 2016 was this? Is the fall. Fall. The fall when so that was a that was a crazy semester then for you. Holy Let me cow. just say this. That was the that was the election. In September, I was a Marxist. By November, I voted for Trump. Dude, that's the that you just <laughs> you, you just gave us the, the title. title. <laughs> oh my gosh, man! That's that is the most insane story wild. I've I've heard yet. That is wild. Uh man, I remember that Twitter account too. I remember I I remember seeing some of those tweets. Oh yeah, Thank that you. was you. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> Oh, wow. One of the tweets was a little off color. I said, <laughs> this is one they called me out for. I said, uh, I said, you know, Trump is really triggering the social justice warriors. Uh, some of them may jump from their dormitory windows. We can only hope something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at this point, I had like 500 followers. None of them were students. I wasn't telling students to go jump out the window, no. but that's what the committee of the diversity, equity, and inclusion committee claimed that I was trying to encourage students to kill themselves. Right. Which was well, absurd. That's because they're looking for something to get you on. And that's right. the closest they could get. And Sarcasm it's a, tor it's a torturous state. reading. It's a very yeah. tortured reading. And well, um, they, their whole reading yeah. was completely tortured. They said I was, I was guilty of, uh, oh, they said I was guilty for the structure of my thinking. Oh, so wow. I had, they basically accused me of wrong think in effect. Yeah. Well, they, they gave you the, the substance for your book, for your novel. Oh, they gave me, well, yeah, they gave me the substance for thought criminal, but also my, fir my first book in this period was called Springtime for Snowflakes. Oh, cool. That's great. Yeah. I remember that book too. Springtime for Snowflakes. Yeah. I don't know where I saw it. Well, you may have seen it on Fox News because it got quite a bit of play. Um, oh, yes. Okay. Were you on Tucker time, or something? I was on Tucker. 
but I was also on Fox and Friends many times. And one time they put the book as the background for the whole stage. And it was that's awesome. The cover was, you know, uh, was spread across the whole stage in the background. And that day, uh, the book went up to like number 50 on all of Amazon, like out of all 15 million books. Wow. Wow. Uh, Fox and Friends is in New York, right? That, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you didn't have far to go for that one. Were you living right. in New York at the time? Yeah. Um, now, so you you were placed on administrative leave. How far into the semester was this? About four weeks. That's pretty early. So someone else took your courses. Somebody took over my courses, and uh, they oh told me that they would follow my syllabi. It did not happen. Uh, they all changed the syllabus, of course. Uh, uh, and did- did you stay and did anybody reach out to you? Any student uh, that you had that you would? Oh, I've had formed? tons of students reach out. They're still reaching out to this day. But I mean, that semester, the 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 ones that you had for the few weeks, and then they were like, "What happened?" Yeah, there were you? there were students that were very upset that I left that I left campus. Um, were you on paid leave or? Well, yeah, I was on paid leave, but yeah, I was going to say, how do you? How do you make a living now? How do you transition? They still wanted me out of the classroom. There's no yes, question. Yes, absolutely. Well, they didn't want a lawsuit, so they yet, right? So, <laughs> uh, so they, how did you? I did sue uh, them. This is, camp. I'm glad. Good. But I, I'm, I, feel free to ignore this question, but I think it'd be very interesting for people. They're wondering the obvious question of, this must have been frightening for you because you have to make a living. How do you make what's going through your mind here? I mean, how, how yeah. are you going to do this? It was terrifying. I mean, um, yes. Okay. All of a sudden uh, they were turning on me and I couldn't even get on an elevator with my colleagues. They wouldn't get on the elevator or let me in an elevator. Wow. Um, and uh, they were uh, slandering me, or I should say libeling me in a series of emails and calling me everything in the book. It was unbelievable what they did. And, um, you know, it was frightening because I was now this total pariah on campus. Not only that, they moved my office to the Russian department. Um, <laughs> That's ironic. <laughs> Very ironic. This is all during the Russia, Russia, Russia collusion wow. nonsense yeah. yeah as if that is an antagonistic <laughs> right so yeah i mean it was terrifying and uh so i sued them so uh i ended up settling with them out of court but uh, yeah and was it during this time that you thought i'm gonna write some books and maybe make some money that way and that will oh yeah me? i started thinking i had well i had it wasn't just about making money i had things to say yes you know? absolutely <laughs> you have a story yeah i uh, had things to say and i i started saying them and then springtime for snowflakes came out in 2018 and then i did google archipelago 2019 and then beyond woke in 2020 then thought criminal and also in 2020 so i'm a little i'm a little behind now because i need a new book I'm working on it. Wow. So being out of the classroom has freed you up to write and write and write. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Um, And I write for the Mises Institute. Okay. 
Uh, oh, that's I'm that's right. pretty. You man, this is like a this is a one eighty for you. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. And I'm full, you know I'm I I've read Mises's absolute demolition of Marxism, and when I was reading it, I was like, like cheering. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it, I felt like I was let out of a, out of prison. Oh know? wow, yeah. How do your kids, again, feel free to ignore this question if it's too personal, but how do your kids, they must be, are they freaked out by your change or my they, children? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, my two sons have been very red pilled. Oh, um, okay. So they, they, at first there was a little bit of resistance, like what's happened to you, you know, but then it was like, oh, they started seeing that I was, they started noticing all the things that I was talking about, like the totalitarian wokeism and all that. And then yeah. they came completely around and they're like, um, this is my two sons. Now I have a daughter that's not come around, but we're very close still. Um, oh, that's good. I, I don't, I don't know if this is a, if this is, it, 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 this could be a difficult question to answer just because it's very abstract, but do you feel have you been able to identify in that transition, like when it, when I was picturing this, when you said you were reading Mises, um, that you feel more like who you are or Absolutely. who you want to be and before that compared to before being something, something, ah, I don't know what the word is, but something uh, constructed. I, yes, 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 <laughs> yes. That's, that's perfect. I was a social construct. Yes, I, w- I was a I was a living, breathing social construct of academia and wow. the academic. That, left. That's a good and, title, too. Wow. Yeah. And, and you see, you just felt alive like a like a like I, who- I, I felt liberated and I felt that's like awesome. I can actually I can actually permit into my consciousness my own thoughts without repressing them without. Oh, my God, well, that, that is, is huge key. Right. Wow. That's huge for people to hear right there phenomenologically yeah. you're 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 noticing that mm-hmm. you're able to have your own thoughts wow yeah when did you first notice that what year was that do you think well it started coming a little before all that you know with the transgender stuff and all that i i was it was being forced down the throats of all everybody and i just i thought this is absurd you know uh <laughs> Uh, suddenly I was being called cisgender, a cisgender hetero male. I was like, what? I noticed that too. Like who's, who's making this, these words up, you know, like (laughs) what did I miss a meeting? I mean, everybody else is, it's actually not everybody else is using that term, but they, they, they talk as if everybody else uses that term, you know, since Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah. Then the pronoun thing. And, um, you know, even before I came out as uh, the anti-PC NYU prof, I, I, I celebrated uh, kid Grant Strobel's uh, pronoun refusal or actually his appropriation of the pronoun thing where he, he put in the Michigan uh, Wolverine port- portal that his, his pronoun was his majesty. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I love that. <laughs> and I posted that on Facebook and I got all kinds of Twitter, uh, Facebook uh, backlash, like thousands, thousands of people, because all my friends at this time were left and a good deal of them, a, a decent number of them were transgender. And okay. I was just, I was just tired of towing the line, you know, with this yeah. nonsense, you know, I, I think it was, uh, I don't know who it was that said, and I, I basically rephrased it. 
you know, um, there's no better way to determine loyalty than to make somebody repeat nonsense. Mm. Telling the truth doesn't give really any indication of their loyalty, but mm. repeating nonsense is really a way of determining their fealty to your agenda. So I was done with that. I was done with repeating nonsense, done with telling lies, uh, d- done with going along with lunacy, you know? Especially if they know it's nonsense and then they know that you know <laughs> it's nonsense and then they know that you know that they know that you know that it's nonsense. <laughs> it becomes, yeah. Oh the, 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 the emperor can only be an exhibitionist for so long. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome that you still are close to your daughter, even though you don't see eye to yeah, eye on she, everything. She's, uh, she appreciates me for what I do, but then she, you know, she honors it, you know, so, but she doesn't agree with me. Hmm. Uh, that says a lot about you as a father, that you have a good relationship. Thank you. Yeah, that's a high, high compliment to you. Yeah, the father-daughter relationship is important. I've got four daughters myself, so that's, oh wow, that, that's inspiring to 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 know. Yeah, that of you. in fact, I just had dinner over their place last night. I have a child, I have a grandson, so that was oh, that's awesome. Him. So you are the chief academic officer of American Scholars. Tell us about mm-hmm. this project. Is this new? How new is it? It's what pretty new. It's on? it's been we've been working on it. I guess about nine months. Uh, it's a online platform and. Uh, we have uh, a free speech forum, but mm. we also have uh, recorded lectures, uh, basically non-woke lectures about American history, economics, uh, the internet, free market economy, uh, you, you name it. And then we're creating a, a one-on-one professorial student uh, forum where students can sign up to have one-on-one sessions with professors on topics of their choice. Mm. And um, that's still being, it's still in the implementation f- uh, phase right now. Technologically, we have a tech guy that's building out that platform and uh, that'll be up and running uh, within a month or so, I guess. That's Do great. You, the business model, is it donations or is it a, a subscription? It's a small fee for being a subscriber. Fall, uh, like a small monthly fee for like $9.99 a month. And then uh, for the sessions, you have to pay per session, but you get discounted if you, uh, if you are a member. Uh, so, yeah. Um, cool. Did you, do you have to raise funds for that at all? Actually, it's bootstrapped entirely. Oh, man. Yeah. We understand bootstrapped. <laughs> are are yeah. you... If somebody wanted to help you with this, uh, they have. Oh, I'd be more than willing to to talk to them for sure. How do so we send them your way? I guess. Yeah, they can write me at michael at americanscholars.com. We'll send. We'll put that in the notes. Yeah, it it, one of one of the things I've thought often about over the last few years uh, with all of the things that are going been going on in culture and all this is is this idea of creating the uh, a second economy or a parallel parallel structures yes parallel structures yeah exactly that's right and and that sounds like what you're participating yeah. in basically with reordering restructuring the university exactly just a parallel parallel structure i think the only 
the only hope is really competition. Right. Um, I don't believe in censoring people. So I don't believe in like going in and throwing out all these leftists from the university if the states were to do so. I think uh, we can't become like them, totalitarians, in order to oppose them. That's good. I totally agree with that. It's really nice to hear you say that. Yeah. Yeah, I I would hope that our politicians would take note of something like that, because you're right. I mean, going in and cleaning house isn't necessarily the right response. It's the wrong response. It'll just create another backlash against that. Yeah. And then you're in this war with these uh, with this nonsense forever. Whereas I think competition, the market is the real key. I think the market and I said now they have foreclosed elements of the market, of course, um, but uh, and they're trying to do so more so with the with the woke hegemony, as I call it. Uh, but mm. it's still it's still there's still space for us to continue to try to exploit, and I don't mean that in the Marxist sense. <laughs> niches, no. exploit, yeah. I mean that in the right. Darwinian sense of exploiting a niche, right. occupying a niche and expanding it. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, yeah. that's inspiring. That's inspiring, Michael. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think the next uh, foot forward is in order to like more broadly? I mean, I know you're doing your uh, work at American Scholars. Sounds like very important work. What can the rest of us do? What's the next step for us? Yeah, I think everybody needs to try to build a parallel, help build these parallel structures Uh, I really encourage people to become more entrepreneurial if possible Mm -hmm. to become uncancelable so that you're not uh, hit with the next wave of cancellations uh, and to um, uh, try to divest from the woke economy, if you will, Uh, including the ESG abiding companies, but also just the whole nine yards of uh, wokeness and we just have to we have to just if 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 we can't save this culture we have to be a remnant for the future amen that's that's very prophetic there spoken spoken like a courageous hero in all seriousness very much so yeah. you're thinking for the long term you're thinking for the long haul yeah we're thinking 300 from Athens. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's so encouraging for me to hear you say that because that's the inspiration for what we're doing here. I'm trying to build an archive because I do believe that in a hundred years or whatever, uh, this archive, I hope, will be available for people to understand where we were coming from, what happened, what happened, and that's and that's what we're doing. That's why we're doing what we're doing, and not revisionist what happened, but what's happening. Yeah what happened right um i think it's necessary you know and i think there's the idea of a remnant and i don't mean to be strictly biblical in that sense but i am being biblical as well yeah uh, is very important and that um if the whole world has gone crazy there has to be a remnant of people that aren't and mm-hmm. they have to make that known and uh, become a legacy for the future what advice would you give to parents that have teenagers? Uh, teenagers, to, yeah. teenagers, 
Uh, I, well, first of all, my advice is always to get out of public schools and most private ones as well. Get the students out of there as soon as possible. Uh, they're being indoctrinated and you might even say brainwashed. Uh, they're getting brainwashed into a destructive cult. Uh, and I don't, I don't mean to be, uh, I, you know, to be um, melodramatic or hypochondriac here, but I think it is. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you're drawing from your tremendous experience and you have legitimate, long-standing experience. You are an expert in what you're saying. You're saying yeah. as an expert, this is my advice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think so. Um, it's, it's dangerous and it's destructive to the social body at large. It's not sustainable to use their language. It's unsustainable uh, because it's right. destructive of the family, which is, I think, the nuclear of the nucleus of society. Without right. the family structure, you have nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, you have nothing but state total totalitarian regimes completely controlling everyone. Uh, so I think, you know, the whole genderism bull, bull crap is all really about breaking down the family entirely. Um, it's destructive of, uh, the economy. Uh, it's destructive of wealth in general, and it's destructive of more, uh, of meaning. This may be most important, uh, yes. the meaning, the meaning that people derive out of life. It's demoralizing to the nth degree. Yeah. The end is removed. Yes. There's no telos because they're just trying to shape you into putty for various yeah. purposes at various times with no end goal. To what extent, um, don't, I don't know anything about your religious or spiritual background or whatever, or, or how you feel about it now, but to what extent do you feel like uh, some of this could be explained by a dark spiritual presence? That, that is real. It's not just a figment of somebody's imagination. It's not the opium of the masses. Ultimately, uh, I think it's explicable that way. Okay. Um, I don't use that explanation all the time because I'm trying to reach people that aren't, that yes, have a problem. Right. Yes. That, so I believe I was, I'm on a mission. Were, and, you, uh, were you metaphysically a materialist when you were? Yes, Marxist? I was. I was a meta. I was uh, on. Uh, ontological materialist. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say more of a methodological materialist. I was agnostic with reference to the immaterial. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that's a big, that's a big leap from that to yeah. thinking this has to be ultimately explained by, because people aren't really that smart. I mean, that's when I, that's why a lot of conspiracy theories aren't very appealing to me just in terms of the raw dumb stuff you see on memes you know but yeah. but just like uh yeah. I, I just know that people aren't smart and they're not very good at keeping secrets and um it's just human nature people are not that bright they're not good at planning things that's why i'm not a marxist yeah, yeah so, that's right um well individuals can plan for themselves that you know this is best done by the individual on their own basis and but when it comes to central planning and all that, this is overriding individual plans. And of course, that's 
overriding our liberty. And that is, yeah. uh, that's the problem with central planning is it overwrites yeah. the planning prospects of everybody else. Yeah. Um, our, yeah. Our spiritual background is Christian mm -hmm. and we, we have the, we have those resources to draw from, from the Christian tradition and there's inspiration from the scriptures. Like there's a great verse and I think it's first Corinthians. I really should know uh, that says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is Liberty stuff like that. Um, yeah. I'm a Christian I, by the way. Oh, okay. Very wow. yeah. That's a, that's a big, that's a really big thing. So you went yeah. from agnostic to Christian. How did that agnostic happen? Marxist materialist to Christian? <laughs> Whoa. I totally missed that. So yeah. Well, I had another thing that happened. That happen? <laughs> my son was diagnosed all while this was going on with the social justice left in my university. By the okay. way, I lost my partner at the time, my girlfriend of 12, 13 years. She became woke and turned against me. Oh. She took the side of my of the university against me. Oh. <laughs> then my son was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And uh, I, at this point, I just looked at the heavens and said, what are you trying to do to me? Get your and, attention. Uh, <laughs> what's that? Get your attention. <laughs> yes, it, it got my attention and I got an answer to that, you know, and that was the conversion I had. I had a Damascus mm. moment. Mm. Wow. And uh, so I, you know, during this period, by the time I was in 2018 or two, yeah, around 2018, I was converted to Christianity. Wow. For those of you listening who doesn't don't, don't know the reference to Damascus moment, that's the famous passage in Acts where uh, Saul, who was named Saul at the time, uh, changed to Christian from just Judaism. Persecuting Christians. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't forget that part. Yeah, it was right after the stoning of Stephen and the narration. So that's in Acts chapter nine, I believe. So he was on the way to Damascus. That's why it's called that. Mm -hmm. um, that's, was your girlfriend at the time working for the university? She, got a, she was working at a college in um, a small college in Carlisle PA Dickinson college. And uh, she completely, I got her the job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I turned her into an academic, everything. So I'll just leave mm -hmm. it at that. Okay. Uh, but she completely entered into that. Uh, when she entered into that whole realm, she turned into a totally different person as well. Mm. And, you know, suddenly was telling me she was this radical feminist. And I was like, no, you're not, you know, you just think you should be one. That's, you know, <laughs> that's a good distinction. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she went woke entirely uh, and uh, took the university side against me. And that uh, precipitated a breakup naturally. Uh, and uh, yeah, so yeah, she was also an academic. Did your son uh, end up succumbing to cancer then? No, he actually survived and it's, uh, he's thriving. He's doing from stage four? From stage four, he was completely cured. Yeah. What? Wow. Yeah. Wait, when, when did this happen? <laughs> wow. 2018. Yeah. Wow. That's kind of a big deal there. Yeah. Very big deal. He, he was healed from stage four cancer. 
Is that how yes. you would say it? Yep. That seems miraculous. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I know. <laughs> it if is not lost on you if we're no. pushing too much into your personal i apologize but this is kind of our style as we we want to leave some kind of a personal record so it's not just ideas and people talking and sure talking I'm, absolutely I'm, yeah. i mean this is all the ideas are you know intricately and imbricated in myself you know so they don't come out of thin air mm -hmm. uh, they're connected to my whole um personal uh experience and so uh it's not like it's flowing from just like uh this wasn't just a book conversion you know this yeah. wasn't just like uh, i was convinced rationally entirely this this was a whole gestalt shift yes you will that sounds like a very painful process it's very difficult but it's rewarding you know um it's rewarding and uh, it's reinvigorating and you're reborn. You're reborn. Yeah. Do, you, do you feel like you have a community of faith around you that's helping you and you, oh, yeah. you're plugged into? Oh, yeah. The people that maybe know what metaphysical materialism means, <laughs> these, <laughs> these big words. My I mean, pastor does. Yeah, my okay. pastor does. Yeah. That, that, that's one of the things we're trying to do here, too, is level up people of faith because they don't know these words and they don't know what, what epistemology means. And right. um, we're trying to help people understand metaphysics. We actually had, I think, Curtis, what, what, what the fourth guest we had on was to already a professional metaphysician, PhD in oh, philosophy. Yeah, JP. JP. Yeah, he's talking about miracles and how miracles could possibly happen. So you know, that we and then the very next guy after that was a, an epistemologist, a professional epistemologist who was talking about the role of evidence and learning. Anyway, so yeah, that's what we're trying to do. It, it may kind of look odd to people. You're the Republican professor, and you have this guy talking about epistemology. What the heck's going on with that? Well, it's because you got to get at the deep roots. Marxism is a materialist system. It's a metaphysically mm -hmm. materialist system. You said procedural which is a helpful distinction. I think a lot of people are. They just methodological. Treat it, yeah. Yeah. They treat it that way. Yeah. They yeah. treat it that way for a certain reason to write papers and stuff. Yes, like, that's right. I mean, in some sense, I mean, I still operate as a uh, methodological materialist because there are different registers, right? So some things do are explicable in terms of this material material uh, reality they don't need to be explained in terms of uh meta any other uh ontologies but then in the end the whole of, of everything must be explained somehow and um yes. i think the only way of explaining the whole is through a, a higher ontology and that is a spiritual ontology where did you get equipped with your philosophical language? Was it in a philosophy major or philosophy? No, no, class? no. I, okay. I've just done, too, just you know, a lot of reading. And uh, my background was, you know, when, in, when I did my dissertation was in the history of science. So, um, yeah, okay. and I was studying the, um, uh, the, the, nat uh, the scientific naturalists. And of course they were methodological, um, mm -hmm materialists that that was one of the ways they kept from getting the criticism of being dubbed you know materialist because that was not 
that was not a very complimentary designation. And so they tried to skirt that and uh, stick to just the material where they were dealing with, by you know, uh, just, just stick with material explanations in the fields that they were endeavoring to understand. Um, so, uh, and then I, you know, I read a lot of history, philosophy, history and science. I, I took courses in the history and philosophy of science at the University of Pittsburgh when I was doing my PhD. Just that's, a, be, that's a really top program. And that's, yeah. I think it's ranked number one in philosophy of science, or at least it was. Yeah, his, yeah HPS, it's number one. In fact, my son, Dylan, the one who survived cancer, is taking courses in that very department now. Oh, wow. I have, yeah. a, I have a friend from seminary. I spent six years in seminary before I did a PhD in public law and American politics. So I'm a kind of weird, you know, I mean, like I was studying Greek and Hebrew and I could, well, listen, I was a, a seminarian in high school. Oh, okay, cool. A did, you take seminarian. did you take Latin? <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. Oh, that's Catholic awesome. Did you take logic? Did they require you to take logic and rhetoric and stuff? I took all that. Oh, no wonder you're so you, you had a great foundation. Jeez. Did you take it seriously as a high school student? Oh yeah. Very high. I was a very serious student. Mm. Very serious. You were way, you were light years ahead. What was the name of the school? Do you care to say? St. Fidelis. It was called, it was a Catholic Capuchin seminary in uh, just North of Pittsburgh. Uh, It was, uh, you know, the Capuchins are reformed Franciscans. I'm no longer a Catholic by the way. Okay. All right. Uh, Pro- would you I, say Protestant or Orthodox or evangelical evangelical? Okay. Mm-hmm. Now you, you're an evangelical. Excuse my vaping though. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm still, <laughs> well, I'm partake. still an unregenerate. I'm still a sinner. We, we, we do cigars. So we're yeah, with yeah. you on that. We, we, we like the suds as well. Um, but you know, Jesus turned water into wine for God's sake. I mean, how do you, <laughs> let's, let's not, totally block out stuff that the lord himself did right um so you're an evangelical that reads latin do you still yeah i know that (laughs) that's awesome yeah i i i am so jealous of you because i could I, i went to a public school in colorado which is why i know the naropa institute but um i uh they had latin at my high school and i guess we had a pretty really fantastic uh latin teacher latin teacher actually she actually was pretty too and uh i took russian instead because i was uh, so f- fearful of the soviets i wanted to be able to understand what they said when they like red dawn red dawn was one of my favorite <laughs> movies as a kid it was also filmed in colorado and uh but i, I now looking back i'm like ah, what a, i should have taken latin latin man yeah That's- it's a very good Thing to take it's a very good language to study just because of the roots of so of course all the oh, romance languages yeah. Yeah. well i i still may it's logical study it. too i mean in yes. some sense there's a <laughs> logic to it. yeah i've heard it's actually a good thing for older people to do to keep sharp to, mm-hmm. to maybe you know take some latin play chess yeah so. absolutely well, we're getting, I think we went past what you said you wanted to do. And I know that you need well, to watch your I, energy. So I enjoyed it though. So that was why I wanted to keep going. 
Well, good. Okay, Thank good. You. I was waiting for to you to say, "Hey, look, I got to cut this off. Here, guys. I need a nap here. I'm a, I'm an introvert." No, that's all right. I just an... it's just that I'm working on a talk to go at Regent University on uh, on this great reset thing. So I, I always try to do something new every time so that I'm contributing to the conversation and not just canned speeches. So yeah. You put effort into it, in other words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what a concept. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. You're you're an introvert, I bet, right? Yes. So yes. <laughs> well, I, my guess is you're gonna. If I'm an introvert too, and I feel like I can, and I, you're gonna need like a week nap after the, <laughs> after <laughs> engaging with all these people. So. <laughs> That's probably right. That's yeah, awesome. I, I have a trouble where I give a talk. I say uh, answer, do the Q&A. And that's basically it for me. At that point, I'm already wasted. And then yeah. people come up and want to keep talking. And I'm like, sure. oh, God. <laughs> they, those people need to be trained before they go to your talk. They need to be trained. Here's an extrovert. Here's an introvert. Extroverts <laughs> typically don't write really deep stuff. And so <laughs> it's going to be an introvert. So be sensitive. He, it's not like he hates you. He, it's just that he's done you know and that's it maybe that's later it. maybe later you could have a cigar but he needs to have an exit exactly. did you ever know uh thomas nagel at nyu i know he taught there oh, yeah. for a long time yeah okay i i read i was forced to read his books in graduate school and he was one of those atheists that was pushing the lines on materialism mm -hmm. um and his book the last word I, I i read in a metaphysics course first semester of seminary and I, yeah, I have ha had him on my radar. I've used him every semester. So mm. yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. What was he like as a person? Did you know him? Well, well? I mean, I barely knew him, you know, it was yeah. kind of like an acquaintance. So, that's all. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the last question I had for you. Anything, Curtis? No, this has just been a great conversation. Great to get to know you. Great to hear Thank about you. your work. Um, yeah. So I just hope to be able to promote you and let people, more people know about what's going on. There's got to be somebody with deep pockets that wants to support what you're doing. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm going to stop recording now. Okay. Okay, great. Thanks.